This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is journalist and novelist Jennifer Egan. Her books include The Keep, The Invisible Circus, and The Emerald City and Other Stories. Her novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Her journalism has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Harper's, and The New Yorker, among others. Her latest novel, Manhattan Beach, is set in World War II New York and tells intertwined stories of heroine Anna Kerrigan, the Navy Yard's only female scuba diver, her father Eddie, who works for both the Union and the Mob, and nightclub owner Dexter Stiles, Eddie's boss. We began the interview discussing what questions and issues were nagging at her when she began writing Manhattan Beach. Before I start writing, there's usually a somewhat long period where I'm I'm nagged not so much by I, where I'm nagged by a sense of time and place. It's like this feeling tapping me on the shoulder again and again that there's there's this place I need to be or want to be um and it's always it always involves a time as well because places in a way you know do vary with time so in the case of Manhattan Beach that time and place were New York during World War II but by the time I actually started writing that feeling was about seven years old and I had gone about kind of pushing past it into doing actual research for, you know, for seven years on and off. That So that general feeling of being interested in New York during World War II had sort of branched out into a, an excitement about deep sea diving, an excitement about ship repair, an excitement, excitement about waterfront corruption, and not yet the Merchant Marine. That didn't really start until I was actually writing. So those were the kinds of hankerings I felt. Usually for me, these this atmospheric yearning, if you will, is coupled with some rather abstract questions. And in the case of this book, those were present pretty much from the very beginning. And in a certain way, those questions are often present at the beginning, and then I need to kind of forget them because they're so dry and abstract that... They're just not helpful to me when I'm actually writing about people. Ideally, I've just internalized those questions to such a degree that what I write will in some way be an exploration of them, hopefully. And those questions were, what is the problem with female strength in this world? Why is it so hard for women to have power, really? What stops us? What, what are the mechanisms that stop us? So that was one question. And then another question was what it was also about power. You know, what what did it feel like to know that kind of global superpower was amassing in the hands of America during during and after World War II? What did that feel like? What did it look like? How did people perceive it? Did they perceive it? So those were the two realms of abstract thought that coupled with these rather visceral atmospheric queries about time and place. I think you've lived in New York for a long time. And I'm just wondering if there was still an initial 
like a light, something that your brain alighted on for 1942 in that time? Like, were you walking on the waterfront? Where did someone say something to you, or did it was it just a more mysterious gathering? I think it probably started with 9/11. Actually, uh, I mean, the city changed drastically for a while after 9/11, and that was really palpable. I think to to those of us who lived here in a way that was a little hard to envision if you weren't here. I mean, place really does matter, you know? The fact that the United States was, except for Pearl Harbor, basically unencroached upon during World War II is such a huge, our, our place was left untouched. That That's such a huge part of what made us so powerful <laughs> later. And so in the case of 9-11, although, you know, it's the nature of modern terrorism and what makes it work, is that a relatively small act, and 9-11 was, was certainly not as small as, as most acts of modern terrorism are, um, but a relatively small act reverberates, you know, almost exponentially through the world of images and, and attains a great deal more power than it would otherwise have. So that all obviously happened with 9-11 and the pictures were unbelievable. Um, but the fact is, it was very different to experience it, to hear the explosions, as we did here, and in the case of my husband, see one of them happen, and to just be watching it on the news. So, it, so New York felt really transformed by that event, and it, ha- it, it from one hour to the next. And so that was profound. I mean, that was just a really surprising thing for an American to witness, um, especially in in a city that has always been synonymous really with power, it, the city felt threatened um, and, I, and porous. And so I think maybe those were the things. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Jennifer Egan, author of Manhattan Beach and A Visit from the Goon Squad, among others. She is also a journalist. So you said, you know, one of the things that you were thinking about was why is it so hard for women to have power and what is the power play out there? Do you feel like in the course of writing this, you found any answers? I don't know if I exactly did in the case of that question, but sometimes the answer I find is different from the one I'm looking for, but it's still an answer, which is nice. I think what I, what this book maybe allowed me to do in terms of exploring that question was understand from the inside a narrative that I think we all know from the outside, which is women were offered various opportunities during the war that really changed their relationship to the world in some way. Then those opportunities were taken away and a propaganda campaign in the 1950s kind of pushed them back into the home. But then all of that summoned energy from the war eventually broke free in the women's movement and and the counterculture in the 1960s. I mean, I feel like that that narrative means nothing to me or meant nothing to me because it's just so familiar. But now I feel much more interested in it. And and I have a new set of questions, which I will ultimately hopefully try to explore because it's so clear that a crazy kind of whiplash happened to women during World War II in which they were not just invited to do work they had never done before, but begged to do 
work that they had been told all their lives they were not capable of doing. So it's much more extreme on both ends. That's what the Rosie Ri- the Riveter campaign was all about, to, to sort of recast the ideal of what a woman should be to get these women out there to do this work because the men were not there. So, you know, so, and so they did this and really excelled at it by pretty much every account. And then after all that, they were, um, they were fired (laughs) and told to stop wanting to do those things. I mean, it was impossible. And it, it was, it's one thing to know that. And it's another thing to actually talk, for example, to a welder that, that I interviewed named Ida, who talked about what an amazing welder she became and still could talk sort of passionately about exactly how, what you have to do to weld well. And then after the war, because she was working class and still needed to work, applied for welding jobs and was just laughed out of the office repeatedly. But the question that all of that left me with is why was it the children of these women who ended up breaking free? (laughs) That's fascinating to me. Why wasn't it the women themselves? So that's very interesting. So I guess maybe instead of an answer, I got another question, but it's an interesting question. Your main protagonist is Anna Kerrigan, and your book begins when she's, I I believe she's 12, and she goes with her father, who's into some underground thing, but she doesn't really know, to a, a very wealthy man's house, Dexter Stiles. So we have Dexter, we have Anna, and we have Eddie, her father. And she has an experience there just meeting Dexter, who was unlike anyone she'd ever met, and being on the ocean and seeing this wealthy life that really just stayed with her. It's it's the impetus for her own strivings later in life. And I'm just wondering about what what makes a childhood impression last? And if you could talk about writing this scene. Some of the research I had done, a fair amount of it, involved the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And so I had a feeling that that's really where it was all going to start with Anna at 19 or thereabouts. I hadn't nailed down all of that. You know, but I, 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 had barely, I didn't even have a name for Anna because I don't start with characters. I really, really just have a time and a place in mind. So it was very surprising to me to find that when I sat down to actually write, I couldn't seem to get to the Navy Yard. I, I didn't want to be there or I wasn't ready or the story wasn't ready. Instead, I was writing about this little girl and her father going to visit this man. And that was the first I knew of any of these characters. There were shadows of of the people I, I guess I, I had sort of intimations of types of people who would be in it. I was fairly certain there would be a woman who would, you know, end up at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I felt like her father would be important, but I wasn't really sure how much that was that was not clear. And then I was fairly sure there would be some sort of impresario underworld personage. But that was it. You know, so I was taken by surprise by the scene on the beach, but also excited by it because when I'm writing, I'm looking, especially, you know, with first drafts where I'm I'm literally instinctively creating the world that I'm going to hopefully end up working with. What I'm, what I'm looking for is a feeling that something will lead to more things that, that, that an environment is rich that that it's gonna that it, it, it's sort of hot, if you will. Like there's something there, um, and I felt that very much about that scene on the beach. 
I can't explain how it happened in a in a sort of planning way because it was it was very instinctive. I, I'm always looking for a feeling of compression because that's really what fiction writing is. It's an act of compression in which you're trying to distill not just the complexity, but the chaos of life and perception into something relatively small that suggests the almost infinitude of our perceptions and experience. And so I felt that sense of compression. I felt like, wow, all of these lives are really complicated. And we we just have a whisper of those complications here. And I also felt that there was a lot of inherent drama in the situation that I looked forward to following into its future. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Jennifer Egan, author of Manhattan Beach and A Visit from the Goon Squad, among others. She is also a journalist. Do you ever experience fear going to the page? Just, I mean, you've done it enough to know that writing into the mystery works out, but do you ever just kind of wake up in the morning and think, I have no idea what's going to happen And how do you deal with that if that happens? Or how have you overcome it in the past? With this book, it was beyond fear. It was like closer to terror, honestly. I reached a point where, I mean, I talked earlier about compression. And what I'm the feeling I'm hoping to have as I write a first draft is that things are sort of coming together, that a kind of distillation is occurring. And what I kept feeling with this for first draft was that it just kept getting bigger. It was like, and then I kept trying to find metaphors for why that was so uncomfortable. <laughs> and so I would say, I feel like I'm letting out more and more net, but I'm not pulling anything back. Like I, I'm just more and more net is going out. And at a certain point, it's like, what am I trying to catch with this net? At a certain point, whatever I'm trying to catch is simply too big for me to catch. I, I, it felt like that. And so I would I really didn't want to work. I felt such a sense of dread and it was incredibly uncomfortable. I would say I had about a year and a half of extreme discomfort working on this where you know it there I did feel acutely frightened and and feeling like I had been somewhat overvalued the with the last time around did not help <laughs> because I thought, you know, you never were as good as everyone said. And now this thing is trash. Um, and, and those are actually thoughts that would go through my head almost constantly at certain points. And that is extremely unhelpful as a, as a, you know, a soundtrack while you're trying to work. I mean, it was just my working environment became extremely unpleasant and and even abusive. I mean, if you had a boss who talked to you that way, you would quit. The way I got through it is the way I get through everything, which is I just kept going. I gave myself the option to quit and I thought about it very hard. I thought, you know, you don't have to do this. Like, you don't ever have to write another book. No, The world won't end. <laughs> it, on some level, no one gives a damn. The reason I did keep going was that the research itself, which I was doing continuously while writing, because I, it, there was so much technical knowledge in here and so much that I didn't know that I had to do research, even in my first draft, just to hack my way through scenes in a very blunt, insufficient way, but just enough to kind of get something down. I had to do research just to do that. 
And what I found was that whenever I was doing the research, it felt really essential and it felt exciting. And I thought, you know, there has to be a reason for that. So one of the the basic questions that I walked away from Manhattan Beach with was, can you change your place in society? I felt like each of your characters was working towards that. Dexter, who was kind of the impresario that you were mentioning, wanted to go legit. And Anna was, you know, fighting against the sexism and other issues that were expected of women of the day. And then Eddie, her father, also was kind of working in the underground, but had some integrity that he wanted to manifest and cared for his family, but also left them and had a new life. I'm oh, I to me, it's an essentially American question that in some ways I've been exploring through all of my work. I mean, the way in which self reinvention and self creation is sort of built into our DNA as Americans, or perhaps it's our collective memory or whatever, is fascinating to me. This is such an American story. I mean, Gatsby is about this. You know, we we are a country made of people who came from elsewhere to start over, and they. That starting over, I think an aspect of that that I hadn't really explored until this book, but I find myself thinking of more and more, is that a big part of that starting over meant wiping out people who were already here. Um, and so there's a lot of violence in, in, our, in our inception. And obviously, there's also the violence of slavery. Our self-reinvention is riddled through with violence. Those who were able to create their lives anew, did so on the backs of other people. Um, and I think maybe that's the part of the vision that I, I'm becoming more and more aware of. But the essentially American notion of starting over, being someone else if you want to, that that is not a trope that, that has the same power elsewhere in the world, <laughs> at least as far as I can understand it. Certainly not in Europe. It's it's just, I don't think that that narrative has the same quick power that, that it does for an American because of the way we started. So I'm always interested in that. And in other books, I've looked at the ways in which that that inclination or that process has dovetailed with media culture, you know, the way that imagery impacts that wish or that desire to, to be made anew as someone else. In this book, I, I let go of all that, which was really a pleasure. Uh, no small screens yet in in the world of 1942, and thank God. <laughs> um, so, in a way, you know, I got to look at that process outside of the of the parameters of um, mass media. But the answer to your question is yes. I believe people can remake their lives at certain times. It, it, windows of opportunity open at certain moments, and then they shut. And it's it's. You know, right now in our culture, we're having a moment when suddenly sexual harassment or co coercion in the workplace, there, there's like a window of opportunity for that to change in a big way. And there's a lot of confusion and, and motion around that right now. Those have those moments have come at other points, like when Anita Hill testified. And then and then the window is sort of closed again, clearly, as we're learning now. And they probably will will close again in the future to some degree. But this is a moment when things are happening. And I, I think the, the same is true of, of most kinds of change. And wartime is certainly a time 
when things get jumbled and there there's you know an imperative that really trumps a lot of other prejudices and and regulations you know for example i did a piece for the new york times magazine years ago on don't ask don't tell and what a nightmare it was for closeted marines who were gay and one thing i learned in my research about homosexuality in in the armed forces is that it's never even a question that arises when the country's at war like no one cares they just want a good soldiers to help win it's it's one of those things that is simply not an issue when there's any kind of urgency in the mix and so i think that to some degree that's that kind of moment where there's an an urgent distraction is is what I'm exploring here, and and it it didn't just open windows of opportunity for women, but also for people of color. There was a mass migration to the West Coast that that happened during World War II, and that impacted everything that has come since, including the tech boom. There was a rearrangement during the war, and that is what interested me. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Jennifer Egan, author of Manhattan Beach and A Visit from the Goon Squad, among others. She is also a journalist. Now that you, you know, you've done all this research, do you feel like you're walking around with all this information in your head and you don't know what to do with it? Or do you just let it go? That's a great question. I I feel like I really miss being in the world of this book. I, I I have that feeling more than I have with other books. And I think it's because it was a different world. It really took me, even though it, it was brutally difficult to become well-versed enough in not just the past, but the past of the past, because what we all bring to this present moment that we're living in now is our individual and our collective pasts. And to write persuasively about any moment in time or any period, you have to know what is in the memories of everyone you're writing about at that time. So the the amount of research, and that's not even getting into the technical stuff that we've been talking about. So the amount of work it took for me to get to the point where I felt conversant in all this and able to write about any of it with authority almost killed me. But once I got there, in a way, the joy was much like the joy for Anna of being able to walk on the bottom of the sea, because it was like actually being able to live in an environment that I'd never been able to enter before. And it was such a thrill. And so I really do miss that. Like I, I, I wish there were a way for me to go there. And in a way I am there because New York is physically still relatively the same place that it was at the time that I'm writing about it. It's changing every second. God knows. I mean, a lot of the, that old housing stock from the 19th century is finally coming down and the, and more and more high rises are going up and that will more and more be true. But still for the most part, you know, there is, there are still a lot of those old buildings. So I am in the same physical place, but the moment is, is so different. So I, it's not even so much the, the, the technical stuff that rattles around in my head, it's more just wanting to be there still. You know, I got to, I was there in my head for a long time and um, I miss it. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Sure. I'm going to read something that uh, from Edith Wharton's book, The House of Mirth, which I think is probably my favorite novel 
Uh, it's hard to say, but you know, she just does it all. And just for context, I will say that this book was published in 1905 and actually by my same publisher, Scribner. I'm just going to read a quick description of a character um, from the point of view of the protagonist, who is Lily Bart. Mrs. Trenner was a tall, fair woman whose height just saved her from redundancy. Her rosy blondness had survived some 40 years of futile activity without showing much trace of ill usage except in a diminished play of feature. It was difficult to define her beyond saying that she seemed to exist only as a hostess, not so much from any exaggerated instinct of hospitality as because she could not sustain life except in a crowd. The collective nature of her interests exempted her from the ordinary rivalries of her sex, and she knew no more personal emotion than that of hatred for the woman who presumed to give bigger dinners or have more amusing house parties than herself. As her social talents, backed by Mr. Trenner's bank account, almost always assured her ultimate triumph in such competitions, success had developed in her an unscrupulous good nature toward the rest of her sex. And in Miss Bart's utilitarian classification of her friends, Mrs. Trenner ranked as the woman who was least likely to go back on her. I'll stop there. I mean, you cannot show me a passage of description, physical description of another human being that does a better job than this. It is off the charts. First of all, there's so much humor in there. It, it covers so much ground. We see the woman, we know her entire history, but most important, we know a tremendous amount about the person watching. This is it. This is what I'm aspiring to. I've never made it, but I hope to. <laughs> Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft. Well, everything changed a lot from the first draft. But I'm going to read a scene of diving because even though I knew a fair amount about diving, anecdotally from having spoken to many divers, I've never scuba dived certainly never worn. I mean, I've worn the Mark V, uh, been dressed in it, but certainly not dived in it. So th this, this took a while to pull off. On the last of the ladder's 14 rungs, she paused to increase her air supply. Sure enough, the dress inflated slightly, easing the water's pressure on her legs. She felt for the descending line, swung her left leg around its manila cord, and let it slide through her left glove as she drifted down, the weight of the dress lulling her toward the bottom, the water darkening as she left the surface behind. At last, her shoes met the bottom of Wallabout Bay. Anna couldn't see it, just the wisps of her legs disappearing into dark. She felt a rush of well-being, whose source was not instantly clear. Then she realized the pain of the dress had vanished. The air pressure from within it was just enough to balance the pressure from outside while maintaining negative buoyancy, i.e. holding her down. And the weight that had been so punishing on land now allowed her to stand and walk under 30 feet of water that otherwise would have spat her out like a seed. There was a single pull on her umbilical cord. Are you all right? She repeated the pull, 
to indicate that she understood and was fine, all is well. She found herself smiling. The air in her nostrils was delicious. Even the hiss of its arrival, which Lieutenant Axel had described as a mosquito you can't swat, was welcome and sweet. They'd been told they wouldn't need to adjust their exhaust valve from the two and a half turns it had been set at, but Anna couldn't resist tightening the star-shaped nozzle a hair to let more air gather inside the dress. She began just slightly to rise, mud sucking at the bottoms of her shoes as they pulled away. A burst of pleasure broke inside her. This was like flying, like magic, like being inside a dream. She opened the exhaust valve and flushed out the excess air until her feet settled again on the floor of the bay. And why did you choose this section? I guess just because it it was um, a moment when finally I was comfortable enough writing about the diving and the equipment to actually just put it all to work in making something happen to Anna. Where do you write? I write at home. And in my office usually, or, but I can write anywhere because I write by hand. I love writing outside. Uh, I love natural light and ideally quiet. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I love going to museums. It's great to go to an environment that is mostly visual. No words at all. If I go by myself, I'm not even having a conversation. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I belong to a writing group. We only read aloud. And my chief concern when I bring work in at, at an early point is just to know whether it's live. How have you dealt with rejection? With stubbornness. <laughs> I just keep going. It's amazing how effective that can be as a strategy. And what is your favorite word? Well, I don't have a favorite word. I'm so sorry. I mean, I, I think the reason that question is hard for me is that there are certain words I rely on too often. I guess you could say those are my favorite words, but they're not my favorite words at all. They're the words we're trying to use less often. You know what I mean? You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Jennifer Egan, author of Manhattan Beach and a visit from the Goon Squad, among others. She is also a journalist. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.